Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Defending Human Dignity, Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 19, 2015. Last Easter weekend, my family traveled to San Diego for my son's birthday. After church on Sunday, we drove down the Point Loma Peninsula to the Cabrillo National Monument. At an elevation of 422 feet, you have spectacular views. The Pacific Ocean to the west, Tijuana to the south, and to the east, Coronado Island and San Diego. On September 28, 1542, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo sailed into San Diego Bay on a ship called San Salvador, literally, Holy Savior. He was the first European to land on what became the west coast of the United States. Dominating the national park is a 14-foot statue of Cabrillo. A plaque describes him as a, quote, distinguished Portuguese navigator in the service of Spain. End quote. Well, that's one way to describe him. My family agreed that Cabrillo was also something else, a classic conquistador. In that regard, he was a man long before his time. Spain eventually built 21 missions in Alta, California. These were religious and military outposts to convert the indigenous peoples but they didn't start until 200 years after Cabrillo. And in fact, the first one was in San Diego in 1769. Christian colonization had catastrophic consequences for the indigenous Americans. Svetan Todorov estimates that the conquest of the Americas killed 70 million people by murder, maltreatment like slavery, and disease about 90% of the population. Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo was only the tip of a long and deadly spear. This Thursday, we observe Holocaust Remembrance Day. We honor the six million Jews who were systematically exterminated by the Nazis in 35 countries, and the additional three to four million people whom the Nazis deemed undesirable and inferior, enemies of the state. Gays, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, Soviet prisoners of war, Slavic people, the physically and mentally disabled, and political dissidents of every sort. The word genocide was coined by the eccentric and brilliant Raphael Lemkin a Polish Jew who single-handedly thrust the issue onto the world stage. On October 16, 1950, after 17 years of Lemkin's tireless labor, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide was finally ratified by the United Nations. In the United States? The United States signed 36 years later on February 11, 1986, after 97 nations had already ratified the convention.
Before he died in 1959, Lemkin broadened the notion of genocide beyond the extermination of six million Jews. He expanded genocide to include the attempted destruction not only of ethnic and religious groups, but of political ones. He thought that the term should also encompass, encompass systematic cultural destruction. Holocaust Remembrance Day thus reminds us of other genocides. A million or more Armenians under the Turks. Two million Cambodians under the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. Kurds under Saddam Hussein. Muslims, Croats, and ethnic Albanians under the Serbs. 30 million Chinese under Mao, tens of millions under Soviet atheism, nearly a million ethnic Tutsis and moderate Hutus by extremist Hutus in Rwanda. And in Darfur, the Fur, Zaghawa, and Mazalite peoples by the Sudan government. The deadliest war of our generation has also been the most underreported conflict the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Since the start of conflicts there in 1996, five million people have perished out of a population of 50 million, a staggering 10% of the population. Over half of those deaths occurred since the war ostensibly ended in July 2003. We often hear the well-meaning mantra, never again. But in his book, Worse Than War, Genocide, Eliminationism, and the Ongoing Assault on Humanity, 2009, Daniel Goldhagen describes how 127 to 175 million people have been eliminated in the last century. These people came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political groups. The vast majority of them were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and almost never with any substantial dissent. By Goldhagen's count, mass murder has deeply scarred countries that are home to 4.4 billion people, in other words, two-thirds of the world's population. Civilian deaths and injuries outnumber military ones by a factor of nine to one. And as I write, according to Genocide Watch, there are at least six genocides occurring right now. The lectionary readings this week from Acts chapter 3 illustrates why Christians should be leaders in defending the dignity of every human being. Peter says that God is the author of all life. He concludes his sermon by proclaiming that in Jesus, all people on earth will be blessed by God. This echoes the global promise first made to Abraham 4,000 years ago in Genesis 12:3. This story of Jesus, says Peter, anticipates the restoration of all things. We can say with unqualified confidence that God knows and loves every name of every person in every nation. Christians are thus geographic, cultural, national, and ethnic egalitarians. For us, there's no geopolitical center of the world, only a constellation of peoples who are equidistant from the heart of God.
Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, and every place, the gospel doesn't privilege any nation as exceptional. No one should think they are forgotten, and no one can, and no one can claim special favor. Much has been written about American exceptionalism. Dick Cheney even has a new book that uses that word in the title. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural dominance, America is unrivaled, and in that broad sense, exceptional, although there's no reason to think that will last forever. But from a specifically Christian point of view, America is no more exceptional in God's eyes than any other country. While allowing for a natural and wholesome love, even a pride in your own country, there's no place like home. This geopolitical egalitarianism subverts the claim of absolute allegiance to any one nation. The claims of the gospel are absolute and unconditional. The claims of the nation and state are relative and conditional. This Christian global vision requires me to care as much about every country and its people as I do my own. Christians grieve the deaths of Iraqis and Congolese as much as Americans. This implies that our politics become reoriented, non-aligned, and unpredictable by normal canons. No state or political party can indulge in the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands when he asks his followers to place the interest of others ahead of their own. After returning from San Diego, thinking about Cabrillo, I remembered the poem ascribed to the German pastor, Martin Niemöller, who lived from 1892 to 1984. Niemöller protested Hitler's anti-Semitic policies in person to the Fuhrer. For that, he was arrested, then imprisoned for eight years at Sachsenhausen in Dachau. His poem comes in different versions, and its exact origins are debated, but that's beside the point. Listen to Martin Niemöller. First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. Niemöller lamented the passivity and indifference of German intellectuals as the Nazis purged group after group of targeted people. I pray that his poem won't describe me. For books this week, I review a title called The Meaning of Human Existence. The author is E.O. Wilson, Edward Wilson, New York, Norton, 2014, 208 pages. Edward Wilson, born in 1929, is on many short lists of the most important biologists in the world today. Since 1996, he's been an emeritus professor at Harvard, 
where he spent some 40 years. He's written over 30 books, two of which won Pulitzer Prizes. Wilson is also an interesting figure because he never tires of describing, including in this book, how he was born in Alabama and raised in the evangelical faith of the Southern Baptists, a faith that he rejected long ago in favor of scientific humanism. If you're tired of the shrill rhetoric of Hitchens, Dawkins, Harris, and Dennett, and still want to read an unapologetic materialist, Wilson is a good option. He was one of the authors of the 1973 Humanist Manifesto. He's described himself as more of an agnostic than an atheist, and in one place called himself a provisional deist. In this and many other books, he's argued for the unification, convergence, synthesis, or what he calls consilience of science in the humanities. And so, the very last sentence of this book, he writes, If the heuristic and analytic power of science can be joined with the introspective creativity of the humanities, human existence will rise to an infinitely more productive and interesting meaning. And in his book, The Creation, from 2006, written as a letter to a fictional pastor, he even says that scientists ought to offer the hand of friendship to religious leaders and build an alliance with them, stating that, quote, science and religion are two of the most potent forces on earth, and they should come together to save the creation. Still, Wilson can be very hard indeed on organized religion. For him, it's the main source of violence and tribalism, an irrational obstacle to progress that we must outgrow. The grand narrative of science, not the archaic version soaked in religion and ideology, is clear and massive. He writes, We were created not by a supernatural intelligence, but by chance and necessity, as one species out of millions of species in Earth's biosphere. Hope and wish for otherwise as we will, there is no evidence of an external grace shining down upon us, no demonstrable destiny or purpose assigned to us, no second life vouchsafed for us for the end of the present one. We are, it seems, completely alone, and that, in my opinion, is a very good thing. It means we are completely free. End of quote. In other words, as an accident of evolution, and with no God to save us, we must save ourselves. Edward O. Wilson, The Meaning of Human Existence, 2014. For movies, we go to the country of Guatemala, in an interesting documentary called Living on One Dollar, 2013. The next time you feel sorry for yourself or are mired in first world problems, try this reality therapy. Watch this 56-minute documentary film made by two college kids. Chris and Zach, buddies at Claremont McKenna College, we're studying international development, 
and decided that an eight-week field trip might be more instructive than mere textbooks. So they moved to Peña Blanca, a rural village of about 300 mainly Mayan people in Guatemala. There they tried to live on one dollar a day, like a billion people in our world do out of necessity. They don't patronize their subjects with pity, nor romanticize their poverty. They experience poverty to be not only hard, but very complicated. A smoking stove or leaky roof can cause huge problems. Yes, they got sick, lethargic from a poor diet, and horrible bug bites. What was their takeaway? What they call the power of partial solutions, in which small changes can make a big impact. That's not a bad way to spend your college summer. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Living on one dollar a day, 2013. And finally, for poetry, we've posted a wonderful poem by Wendell Berry. It's called A Timbered Choir. Even while I dreamed, I prayed that what I saw was only fear and no foretelling. For I saw the last known landscape destroyed for the sake of the objective, the soil bludgeoned, the rock blasted. Those who had wanted to go home would never get there now. I visited the offices where, for the sake of the objective, the planners planned at blank desks set in rows. I visited the loud factories where the machines were made that would drive ever forward toward the objective. I saw the forest reduced to stumps and gullies. I saw the poisoned river, the mountain cast into the valley. I came to the city that nobody recognized because it looked like every other city. I saw the passengers worn by the outnumbered footfalls of those whose eyes were fixed upon the objective. Their passing had obliterated the graves and the monuments of those who had died in pursuit of the objective and who had long ago forever been forgotten according to the inevitable rule that those who have forgotten forget that they have forgotten. Men, women, and children now pursued the objective as if nobody had ever pursued it before. The races and the sexes now intermingled perfectly in pursuit of the objective. The once enslaved, the once oppressed were now free to sell themselves to the highest bidder and to enter the best-paying prisons in pursuit of the objective, which was the destruction of all enemies, which was the destruction of all obstacles, which was the destruction of all objects, which was to clear the way to victory, which was to clear the way to promotion, to salvation, to progress, to the completed sale, to the signature on the contract, which was to clear the way to self-realization, to self-creation, from which nobody who ever wanted to go home would ever get there now, for every remembered place had been displaced 
The signposts had been bent to the ground and covered over. Every place had been displaced, every love unloved, every vow unsworn, every word unmeant to make way for the passage of the crowd of the individuated, the autonomous, the self-actuated, the homeless, with their many eyes open toward the objective, which they did not yet perceive in the far distance, having never known where they were going, having never known where they came from. Wendell Berry, a timbered choir. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April the 19th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.